are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and drinking tea with tea monks. This is Season 6, Episode 8, Truly Fantastic Fantasy. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs for Part 2 of this two-part episode. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Boy, I wish tea monks were real. They could I know. Be. Oh my gosh, that would be so amazing. I actually, I need to reread the Psalm for the Wild Built, uh, which is what that uh, that the tea monk thing and the quote we're going to read in a few <laughs> minutes is from, because it's just so, it's such a balm for the soul. This story is so beautiful. And um, this, yeah. we're going to try not to turn this episode into just a Becky Chambers <laughs> love fest. But if yeah, you had to, to, if we had to summarize, like who is one of the best modern authors doing, as we characterized it last time, helpful fantasy world building, it would be Becky Chambers, who has been characterized as um, queer normative hope punk. So hope punk, <laughs> hope punk being uh, a genre I really love. And I think we can learn a lot from, and I think it could indeed even inspire our own world in a lot of ways, because there are some times that life has imitated art. And I think that um, having beautiful art in the world can bring us closer to the to the worlds that they imagine. The only way to make a better world is to imagine it first. There's mm-hmm. no way to enter into it just blindly. You have to be able to have a thought before you can make it a reality. And yeah. one of the amazing things that really intricately done world building in fantasy that doesn't just trade on the same old systemic oppressions that we have in the real world can do is open our eyes to how uh, the systems in the real world, could, real real world, can be repaired mm-hmm. and and renewed and changed. Um, and that's one of the things I love about reading fantasy. It's also one of the things I love about writing fantasy is is yeah. imagining how the world can be different. Now, right, before we talk about all that, though, let's uh, have our quotes for the day. Our scripture quote comes from Psalm eighty five verses eight through eleven. I will listen to what the Lord God is saying, for God is speaking peace to God's faithful people and to those who turn their hearts to God. Truly, God's salvation is very near to those who fear God, that God's glory may dwell in the land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring up from the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is from Psalm for the Wild Bill. It's a conversation between the robot Mosscap and Dex, the main character. The robot returned to its chair, leaning forward and folding its hands together in a pose of pure earnestness. I am here, it said, to see how humans have gotten along in our absence. As outlined in the parting promise, we are... Guaranteed complete freedom of travel in human territories and rights equal to that of any Pangan citizen, Dex said, the atrophied memory kicking in at last. You were told you could come back at any time and that we wouldn't be the ones to initiate contact. We'd leave you alone unless you wanted otherwise. Precisely. And my kind would still very much like to be left alone. But we're also curious. We know our leaving the factories was a great inconvenience to you, and we wanted to make sure you'd done all right. That society had progressed in a positive direction without us. So you're checking in? (laughs) 
So should we just start there? Can we just start start with let's the just, song let's for the Wild just Belt love and on, Becky Chambers? Let's love on Becky Chambers. Love on Becky Chambers for a little while. Maybe we'll talk about somebody else after that. Um, if you haven't read Becky Chambers yet and you're listening to this podcast, what are you waiting for? Oh my gosh. Uh, so in this story, the song for the Wild Belt, which is a novella, it's very brief and beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. This world that she has created is a world where there used to be a a, a race of enslaved robots. So these robots at some point in the distant past uh, worked in factories and um, didn't have any autonomy. And um, we we don't know all the history because it's just given to us in little dribs and drabs. But um, at some point in history, the uh, society decided to deindustrialize. And in that deindustrialization, they allowed the robots to leave. And made this thing right. called the parting promise. And the robots went off into the woods. Uh, and it's been hundreds of years since that happened. And nobody's really seen a robot since until Moscap runs into decks while they are, I don't know, um, bathing for, or something. They're, <laughs> they're they're like, they're, yes, on a bigger level, they're searching for their vocation and for meaning like all of us do. And I, I love the image of this world, though, because it it basically puts the lie to the fact that progress quote unquote progress needs to Mm. continue to progress further and further down the line of industrializing and that progress could be could mean this deindustrialization bringing us back closer to the land and so much of their society is built around gatherings there's i mean part of dex's role as a tea monk is that they cycle with their like tiny house on wheels. It's amazing. From place to place, they set up their tea shop, their tea experience. It's not a shop. They're not selling anything. It's their ministry. They're just, they set up cushions. They find the right blends for people. They create a space where people can get exactly what they need. And as they run into Mosscap and Mosscap wants to learn more about how the people have progressed without the robots they kind of do a tour of this world panga or the the, the region that they're in um, in the, the end of this book. And then the next one, um, a prayer for the crown shy. And you get to see what a different world could look like. And it's, it's, it's a relaxing place to be in. Um, and it actually reminds me a lot. I didn't think about this until you mentioned um, progress can be deindustrialization that one of the reasons I love Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern books is that they're precise they're very similar to Panga in that way. Um, Pern was a colony founded by you know far in the future very technologically advanced people who were choosing a much lower standard of technology. They said that the minimum standard of technology required for a healthy life, which is still pretty spectacular. like they still have like aircraft and artificial intelligence. Um, But when the books start up, they have lost so much of that technology. And one of the things I love about spending time in Pern is it's just a more communal, social, song and story-based society. Mm -hmm. And I I think that, you know, the, the teachers are the bards. They're the ones who teach ballads at that are, they're the teachers. They're the ones who are instructing the young people, but also acting as kind of the glue that holds the society together. Mm-hmm. And you're able to move ahead in society based on your own skills in three out of the two out of three of the segments of their society. And it's 
it reminds me a lot of Panga in that way and just is an incredibly relaxing place to spend time in. When we talk about deindustrialization, I think about the verse from Genesis that that uh, in English gets translated as um, have dominion over the over the earth. Mm-hmm. Be fruitful, multiply and have dominion over over this. That concept of dominion um, basically uh, what, you know, in our world, in our modern world means, you know, do whatever you want to the earth. It's yours. Right. <laughs> That's kind of how it's mm. been used. Uh, you have dominion over it. Uh, the next chapter, Genesis talks about tending the land, stewarding the earth. Uh, and so when people talk to me about this concept of having dominion over the earth, I, I usually remind them that, you know, when this was written to have dominion over something meant to like plant crops, it didn't mean to clear cut a forest mm-hmm. or to take a mountain, to take the top off of a mountain to get to the mm. ore that's inside it. Like our ability through through industrialization, we have taken that concept of dominion to such a degree that it's nowhere close to what the biblical writers were talking about because mm-hmm. they were so much closer to the land. They would never have even thought about the concept of being able to um, take every tree down in a rainforest. Right. Just the scale was so much smaller. The ability to in, impact so much change was just not there. It just didn't exist. And so for us to think the concept of deindustrialization doesn't mean that we have to go back completely to um, no technology, no medicine, no anything, you know, and have our lives just be nasty, brutish and short. And then we die. Mm. But it also but but we need to recognize that one of the things that we're being called to as we move into the next part of our existence is to live more simply, especially right. in an in industrialized Western society. Well, and Panga and Pern both show that you can reach the pinnacle of technology and find that life isn't what it should be. In some cases, you know, in the case of Pern, they're fleeing from a war of destruction. We're not sure exactly what happened in Panga, but it sounds like they made the choice to step back from that infinite growth and infinite progress requires infinite resources, which we know simply does not exist. And both of these worlds choosing to take a step back to live more lightly in a way that restructures their society around consumption, um, from consumption to something else is such an inspiring concept and one that we need to be taking more seriously in our world as we had had that idea of infinite growth for a long time. And it's interesting that dystopian fiction often has, uh, is often done in like post-apocalyptic societies mm. where there is no longer technology. Mm-hmm. You know, the the gas has run out or, you know, there was some kind of electromagnetic pulse because of nuclear fallout or whatever. And we yeah. don't have computers anymore. We don't have anything. And those worlds tend to be very bleak and very much kind of a, a reversion to the state of nature where you're just doing anything you can to survive. I'm thinking about the book Station Eleven a little bit right now. Have you oh, read that? Yeah. Right? yeah. The Family whole point of John that Mandel. book. Right. The whole point of that book is that survival is insufficient. They have a traveling the traveling um what do they call it? The traveling symphony. And yeah. they put on Shakespeare and they put on, you know, musical performances because that's the only way they know to continue living. When we think about dystopian fiction that is no longer technological, I think that there's some incorrect assumptions being made. In, in some ways where it's like, okay, and that's, you know, not having technology anymore is bad, mm-hmm. um, which that's not necessarily the case. 
uh, how you respond to no longer having technology when you want to continue to consume resources at the rate you were doing before, that's what leads to the dystopic nature of those societies. But if you were able to revert to some other way of, of being, then living in that society might be okay. When I think about dystopian books, um, they are sometimes post-apocalyptic. Like how you know how do we after this big crisis recreate society in some ways well or in other ways very poorly? Um, but also dystopian literature is was really popular when I was a teenager and kind of coming of age, and I think it shaped a lot of the ways I thought about the world. Particularly, what ushered it in um, was the Hunger Games, which wasn't apocalypse post-apocalyptic um they hadn't yet reached the brink of like destruction of the world but it's definitely dystopian in that they have a society that's set up based on careful control of most people by a privileged few in this case the capital and it was it was a way for me as a teenager to kind of see to see the united states and the systems of um wealth inequality, the way that we kind of tokenize um, the suffering of others and made it made it big. It made it bigger. So we might on on the news, you know, see the suffering of people across the seas and in other parts of the world and then flip and you're suddenly on a reality TV show. Uh, and that's actually how Suzanne Collins came up with the idea was the merging of those two of the the pageantry of reality TV media, and then the suffering, real world suffering of others. So this takes, so the Hunger Games takes things that we, that happen in our everyday lives, which is that our, our well, our well-beings are built on the backs of other people and just makes it much more obvious, much more big, much more intentional, and a lot more interesting to read about as a result. So you just use the word intentional, and that's the word we want to key in on for this discussion is... How do our how do our fantasy authors intentionally world build in such a way that helps us to imagine better worlds? Mm. Uh, how do how do they how does the intentional and careful construction of a way a society is designed within somebody's mind and not in the real world? How does that help us imagine the way new worlds can, uh, how our world can, could move forward and, and be, and which is why we love Becky Chambers so much. We talked about mm. Song for the Wild Bill, but her other books, the Wayfarers series, which takes place in space with all these other uh, fantasy species, or sorry, sci-fi species, right? Um, and they, uh, those species have had in the past a lot of the types of problems that we have in the real world. Uh, mm -hmm. specifically colonialism being a huge one uh, yeah. with some of the with a couple of the the uh the the um, planets dominating the other ones right the um mm -hmm. what, what are they Harmagi called? the harmagians were the former conquerors of the galaxy yeah like the entire thing right they're basically yeah. the british empire um but they're slugs but yeah, they're basically Slugs jellyfish. And mobility aids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and and but when the humans finally meet the rest of the galaxy, the Hermogians have kind of apologized for a lot of their prior ways and have tried mm -hmm. to make reparations for them. Mm -hmm. um, there are still some peoples um, that are on the outside uh, on the outskirts. Uh, but for the most part, this this galactic society is running fairly smoothly, and it's all based on the fact that these different peoples recognize each other's 
sentience mm-hmm. uh, and ha- make allowances for the different biologies and the different ways of being and the different ways of family groupings and all of these, the, the diversity in these stories mm. is so fascinating because of the way that the author has imagined all of these different peoples. And then she has the audacity of making them get along on this ship. And they yeah. have their little tiffs, but overall they're a family. And and it's it's the fact that they're a family on the Wayfair is the thing that you kind of pull away from the story. And every family has its little tiffs, but they respect each other, they care for each other, and they go out of their way to be kind to one another in their difference. And that's such a, a wonderful image of of how the world could be in reality. I think one of one of the very practical setups that I like about the Wayfarer series, particularly the first one, is that they each have different physiological, biological needs. When Corbin is getting after the pilot, Sissix, um, for having the temperature up too high, Ashby puts a stop to it because he's like, she will literally not be able to function if she is too cold. Like your preferences don't matter when it comes to her ability to like survive and to function and to, and to pilot this ship. Um, there's another part in a later book, the one that takes place on the human fleet, where they have to, where the Hermogian visitor, who is like the slug creature, has to get out of her cart. And because she's not in a space designed for Hermogian, she's in a space designed for humans. And she has to kind of glide across, across the floor. But if she were to ingest any of the chemicals on the floor, like the cleaning chemicals, it would be very harmful for her. And as a group, the humans in that instance show as much hospitality as they're able to within their very human-centric systems. And they take all their water out of their water bottles and dump it on the floor to clear a space for her. And you see the way that the different places are set up for each species in a way that's accommodating. The final book is my favorite, and that's the one that has no human characters. Mm -hmm. It's all these different sapients. And the way that this kind of truck stop motel stopover places set up is to be species inclusive. So they have the different bathing mechanisms for each each creature. They have different types of food for each creature. She even makes an attempt to have calm it like black and white colors on the outside of the buildings because some of the species are very color sensitive mm-hmm. um, and realizing the kind of cultural sensitivity that goes into having this multi-species society. Yeah. And in that book, you're talking about the galaxy and the ground within yeah right uh that book was written at the very beginning of the pandemic and it's you can tell because it's oh, basically they're all trapped they're all trapped in a house together mm-hmm. you know for a couple of days because of some kind of event like a i don't know a meteor shower satellite. or something is a satellite yeah, something or other. yeah. Um, but th- so basically it's like five or six characters all of them are from different places from different planets and they're encountering each other and the story is about their encounter the whole thing mm-hmm. is about their them encountering each other and learning more about each other um and for the most part doing it in um very open ways I mean, there's by a little the bit end, of there's, certainly, yeah. there's some conflict as you go through the story, but by the end of it, they they come to some understanding. It's kind of a breakfast club sort of story. It absolutely is a space breakfast club. <laughs> oh my gosh. You look at us and you just see the LaRue mother and the Aluan pilot, but we see, okay, okay, I won't do that, but that's a great fan fiction. Someone should write it. Other things I love in Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series. Um, 
we learn from that book that gender in the LaRue culture, who are like the hosts, uh, they're kind of like fuzzy elephants. Uh, gender is not set. It's not tied to biological sex. The child chooses their gender, what they feel correct, what body, you know, what um, expression they feel correct in as they get older. And it's a great celebration. Uh, we learn that parenthood in Eloan and Andrisk society is very different. The children are not raised by their biological parents necessarily. In Eloan culture, parenting is professionalized. <laughs> the females have their children fathered by professional fathers who are then raised the children in a way that they're all trained. They all have first aid training. Um, and Andrisks, as we've talked about before, have their kind of creation of their feather families, their chosen families. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I also love in the fleet, the human fleet, they quickly realized that they had to basically reinvent society if they were going to be stuck on these ships fleeing a dying earth together. And the, one of the systems they came up with was that they have a barter economy on the fleet. So in theory, everyone should be at least able to sleep and eat somewhere in the fleet, no matter who you are, where you come from, you would have that welcome. Yeah. You, you are doing a particular job. And when somebody else is doing a different job, you know, it's not that one job is better than the other. Mm -hmm. It's that all of the jobs in the fleet are necessary for the fleet's flourishing. And we honor that. And everyone does garbage duty. Everybody does garbage duty. Even um, the president yeah. or whatever they're called, <laughs> the leader. You're um, talking about LaRue gender made me think about our D&D uh, &D game mm. um, when um, our friend Rowan, who's been on the podcast a while back, um, did a great episode with us about Star Trek. Um, they wanted to play a non-binary character. And I had already been toying with the Elven Society in Suleril, um, and decided be, with their help to create um, an Elven peoples who are non-binary by assumption. And then, if they mm -hmm. want to choose a gender, they can. But mm. but their the society is non-binary. And in in kind of creating that society, it made me have to think about so many things. Like, what does parenthood look like? Yeah, when you when you aren't necessarily when when there isn't like a mother and a father, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're gonna blow up the nuclear family here within this particular society, and it's not something I had really thought a lot about because I'm a straight white guy. Well, the whiteness doesn't have anything to do with it because I'm a straight guy who's married and has a couple of kids. I'm married to a woman who has a couple of kids, and again, that's in mm -hmm. my brain normative, but that's not how all families are. Right. So in this particular elven society, I came up with, okay, you have the parent who birthed you and there's a special word for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not mother, it's birth mm -hmm. parent or a translation would be birth parent. Although mm -hmm. in, in the common tongue, it might get translated as mother um, because, because, because they're of not understanding the gender, the gender yeah, nature yeah, so of that they, word. They would be binary, I'm assuming. And then, um, uh, so that birth parent is able to give birth to babies, but that doesn't necessarily make you female because mm -hmm. that that's a whole nother axis, right? Um, on uh, within this elven society, and then the child gets to choose a second parent. Um, is this the love parent? The, there, so there's the love parent and there's the birth parent, and the I love, love the parent love is parent. basically like a mentor that mm -hmm. you choose. Uh, it's it's your coach or your teacher who who becomes so important to you that they become a second parent. And they don't live with the first parent that they... Um, mm -hmm. And because elves live for a, a really long time, there isn't an assumption of 
of marriage lasting forever. So, you, and you also, you know, so there's lots of different things within that culture. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is, I had already created a couple of Elven characters for that world before mm. I made any of those choices for the world. And they were all female right. for the most part. Um, and so I thought, okay, wait, why are these people female? Well, obviously the the real world example is because I wasn't thinking about a non-binary society yep. at first. I was thinking in very cis-normative ways. And then I realized, wait, okay, so these couple of characters that I've created, who, who they don't live in the country where they were born. They mm, live with left. humans and other creatures. And for these three or four characters, it was just easier for them to say, yeah, I'm female. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was kind of the way I justified that they were yes. female characters. It's kind and of a I, retro fitting. It's a retro fitting, but then it's also a, oh man, that's, that's too bad because it is a reflection of our world in which people whose gender does not necessarily conform with the expectations of what their body looks like mm. from an outside source, just sort of sometimes just sort of go with it because it's just easier than correcting people all the time. Oh, see, I thought that they kind of had had actively chosen and identified with, like, Grail was like, no, I am Grail being one of my favorite elven characters and um, would have been the love parent of my dwarf character if he had had a choice, (laughs) if that was part of his culture, but it wasn't. Anyway, um, I thought that they had chosen that, not necessarily just resigned themselves to it. So that makes me quite sad in a lot of ways. But that's a question. I'm not sure. You know, I haven't dug into those, their characters enough to really decide was it an active choice to be female mm-hmm. or to present as female or to say you're female because their body is presented as female or was it just like a bowing to societal pr- pressure when they were outside of the elven culture? And what you said about like, it might be translated as mother birth parent um, just goes to show the prejudice that exists in the other parts of the fantasy society. I love hearing about the development of your fantasy worlds, not only because I enjoy spending time in Sularil as a player and as a reader, but also seeing the way that you've adapted as you've learned more and the way that the world adapts and becomes more broad and more interesting as a result. And I think those kind of internal justifications actually make it more fun to read. So there's one more I wanted to mention from my fantasy oh, world, yeah. and that's that you talked about the dwarven culture a minute ago. Um, one of the things I had to wrestle with, with peoples that live a lot longer than humans do, mm-hmm. is what are the assumptions of their family systems based on the fact that you could live four to 700 years, yeah. you know, three to 400 years for a dwarf, 700 years for an elf. What is that going to look like? Uh, and for dwarves, I recognize, okay, I think that dwarves, their culture tends to be, we're going to get, we're going to marry and be together forever. Mm-hmm. And our families are going to get massive. <laughs> like you know, the they're going to be generations more. after generations of people, you know, living within our family. And so, uh, you know, I created a, a the, the dwarvish um, kind of uh, blessing of, you know, may your great grandchildren, mm. you know, um, breathe in your ashes or something, you know, like, the, the, you know, whatever. Um, but when I was writing the novella that you can get for free, if you uh, join my mailing list and Carrie will mention that again. Grim Axehaft, my favorite. Uh, who is, uh, 
a hero of of the stories that I've written in my world and was a vampire hunter. And I created his backstory and he's married to a, a male dwarf um, and they obviously can't have biological children of their own. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, OK, so they want to adopt. And I went, oh, wait a second. It would be really weird for them to adopt a dwarven child mm. because in this society with so much with, family. with families living for so many generations and you have your great great grandparents still being around and being very vital it wouldn't make a lot of sense for a child to not just be part of their family grouping if their own parents died mm-hmm. or if you know so so in general that just didn't make a lot of sense and then i thought okay well so then they they obviously adopted human kids mm. and that that one you know thought experiment led to the entire story of that book. Right. Which you um, should all read because it's interesting and sad <laughs> and good. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting when you're doing that world building, what are the implications of the world building for the stories that you create? And if you're able to imagine your way into different ways of new ways of being, um, then that's the way that we can, we learn to tell new stories. And, and that's how it works in the real world, real world as well. Mm-hmm. When we're able to imagine our way into new ways of being, that's what makes the world a better place. And when authors are able to create systems that mirror ours in some ways, but very much flip things on their, their head, it helps us to learn more about what what we do, what the unconscious biases we bring into our world. So I'm thinking of N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy. We joked earlier that there's still conflict in all of these books. You don't have books without conflict. But in the case of the Broken Earth trilogy, um, their oppression is based on the magic system, just more interesting oppression rather than none at all. And that is becomes a way of investigating how our own world operates. And in that series, it's really about overcoming that systemic mm-hmm. oppression and what are the lengths you're going to go to do so. And you can see so much real world influence into those stories, but it's not done in a lazy way. It's done in an incredibly intentional way so that yeah. we can interrogate our real world um, systemic oppression through the lens of a different one in the fantasy world. So N.K. Jemison is a very intentional and brilliant author in so many ways. And I, d- I didn't know that I did not pick this up when I was reading it. But our friend Other Adam pointed out that the way that she employs color words are all instead of describing thing, you know, we, we describe skin tone with a number of color words. Some of them are food oriented and that can be tied to like to some kind of to icky, like racist things where like people of darker colors often get described by food names mm-hmm. um, in kind of like a consumption oriented way. Yep. She uses rock and like earth geological descriptions, which I think is really beautiful given it's called the broken earth trilogy for a reason. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, the earth and the rocks and all of that has a lot to do with it. So ver- the very writing and the very way she chooses to describe people is based on a system in the world that makes sense. In the end, this two-part episode uh, is really our way of encouraging you as a reader to interrogate the fantasy worlds that you are reading. What assumptions are the authors making about the about their worlds and how does that reflect our real world what in their world building is 
enlightening you to new ways that we might be able to move about this world, be it uh, to overcome systemic oppressions or to uh, learn how to tread more lightly on the earth uh, so that we can avert global disaster in the environmental space. These fantasy worlds just give us the license to dream. The most expansive fantasies are the ones that help us to dream in new ways. And maybe we'll get tea monks. Yay, tea monks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com. You can find all nine of Adam's fantasy novels on his website, adamthomas.net. Sign up for his bi-monthly author's newsletter to receive a free PDF of the aforementioned novella, Highest Stakes, a memoir and manual about my life as a vampire hunter. As always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May God grant you an imagination unfettered by the sins of a broken world. May God point you to a wide open future unchained from the narrow paths of the past. And may God bless you to be a blessing, creating alongside God the new world where mercy and truth have met together, where righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Amen.